in a world where most people watch movies and then forget about them. These brave heroes join forces to watch them again and then talk about them. Join them in their epic journey as they go back in time, a decade and beyond, to revisit and break down films from a vast array of genres. Do these movies hold up over time? Are they classics? Find out on Retro Movie Roundtable. Starring your hosts, Brian Fry, Chad Robinson, Dustin Melbarnes, Lizzie Haynes, and Russell Guest. Coming now to Headphones in Your Ears. Welcome, all you lords, ladies, and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable, where we watch movies and then talk about them. I'm your host, Dustin Melbardis, and joining me today is my good friend and co-host, Brian Fry. Brian, how are you? Good evening, everyone. I am doing fantastic, and I hope you are too. It's the middle of the NBA playoffs. What's your NBA Finals matchup, Brian? Do you have a dream matchup? Denver's Sixers. Nuggets Sixers. I actually want the Nuggets to come out of the West, too, but I am definitely on the the Hemi Butler train right now. I I want... Well, I would love to see Butler in the, yeah, I'd like to see that too. Actually, I, I don't really care who comes out of the East, uh, but I would prefer a Joker-Embiid matchup. Ooh. Yeah. Like, I just, I yeah, need that, like, great. last year's MVP, this year's MVP, give me that. That's what we want to see. Well, you know what else we want to see, and we want to hear from our guest tonight, coming to you from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, the Steel City. It's one of our most frequented and favorite special guests. Mary Guest, how are you? I'm great. How are you guys? It's good to be here today. Wonderful, wonderful. And great to have you back. Thanks for coming. I think your episodes were some of the ones that I first listened to when Russell first introduced me to this, specifically Mystery Men. <laughs> That's a good one. It is not, Mary. <laughs> I'm at the episode. Ah, yes, it's a good episode. It is not one of my favorite movies. But today's movie, we're gonna, we got a movie to discuss today. It's a David Lynch movie uh, known for the Twin Peaks series. Mary, what's your favorite Twin Peaks moment? That is actually really hard to pick. So a couple of things come to mind, but there um, is an instance that I actually remember when I watched Twin Peaks the first time. So I would have been seven, probably not eight yet, but I remember the scene vividly where Agent Cooper has a, a cup of coffee and he tips it, but no coffee comes out because the coffee is solid. Oh. And then he, he is puzzled by it and he tips it again and the coffee spills on the floor. That blew oh. my mind. That <laughs> actually, that scene probably is why I love film so much. And I honestly was like, of course, I'm watching it with my dad. and He's reading a newspaper. I was like, Dad, did you see the coffee? And he was like, uh-huh. yeah, dear, something's going on with the space-time continuum. And just like, <laughs> like, that's like a thing. And it blew my mind and stuck with me all these years. That's great because it's nice to know in that sort of surrealist series that, oh, things aren't normal. Right. And to see it. How about you, Brian? What's your favorite Twin Peaks moment? I, I wanted to bring up something that my wife criticizes me. Well, I shouldn't say criticizes me. She gives the warning to new people that we meet that 50% of what I say is, is movie quote. And, and I do, I've got, I've got certain verbal tics that are directly from movies and shows that I've liked. And I got to tell you guys, I say damn fine coffee at least once a week, at least oh, yeah. it might be once a day. 
but <laughs> I, I know I'm thinking it most of the time while I'm drinking coffee. So uh, assuming it doesn't suck, but yeah, I uh, I've got to give a hats off to 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 damn fine coffee. I don't think I've said damn fine coffee to a server, but I do look up into the server's oh, eyes when I have my cup of coffee <laughs> and I think about it. I have a, an answer here because the, Mary was right. There's too many. There's so many favorite moments. I've got a lot of least favorite moments too. You know, I don't particularly love uh, the song. James Hurley's song that he sings is my, oh. maybe my least favorite thing. But I will say mine comes from the third season, to the Twin Peaks, The Return. And it's just a, uh, a very creepily delivered line from our hero, Dale Cooper. He simply says, what year is it? And it is, uh, it, it really puts some things, we'll say, out of perspective, which is kind of what we want out of our David Lynch movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mary, what's the last movie that you saw? Having a toddler at home, I actually saw The Beauty and the Beast two times today. Mm. <laughs> at least that's <laughs> a good one. <laughs> and every time he's like, no, don't kill the beast. <laughs> oh, wow. This is very dramatic. Yeah, I'm I'm a little partial to Gaston over here, but yeah, tw- twice in one day. So yeah, it's fresh on your mind. Yes, very. Bruh? If well, if I'm being honest, it's it's going to be uh, Tinkerbell. Beauty and the Beast as well. Um, no, it was Tinkerbell. Um, oh. f- uh, Pirate fairies, pirate fairies, and it's probably been my last three movies. But uh, what I was going to say, the the last movie I watched for my pleasure. <laughs> was uh, The Greatest Beer Run Ever. We had a guest recommend that to us, uh, uh, First I off, absolutely amazing book. It was one of Barnes & Noble's monthly picks for nonfiction pick of the month, and I read it over a vacation we had in about four hours. It's a fantastic book, and it's a really funny movie, too. And this is a comedy, but it does happen in uh, Vietnam or related to? Yeah, quick, quick premise on it is basically that uh, a gentleman is a merchant marine, uh, he frequents a bar in uh, Brooklyn, and he and a bunch of his buddies over beers one night decide that it would be cool if uh, they could show their appreciation for their guys from the block who are in Vietnam right now. And this guy uh, accepts the job of sh- taking beer on a merchant marine ship to Vietnam, and mm-hmm. he hikes all through Vietnam to find these guys and sit down and have a beer with them. And this is including like Way and the Tet Offensive. Wow. So yeah. like like there's some action to it too, but it's basically this whimsical thing about him going over and saying, Hey, here's to you. Yeah, what a premise. Yeah, maybe I have cool. to put that on the list of it, things it's, it's I'll a, get to in the next decade. Fun. <laughs> yeah. One of these days I just look forward to being like cocaine bear. I watched cocaine bear. Yeah, one of these days. Yeah, one maybe maybe days. we do a month instead of a retro movie roundtable. We do a. Uh, it's hard for me not to just say a cocaine movie roundtable, but no, a recent movie roundtable. Maybe we do one of these. <laughs> cocaine bear, blow. <laughs> <laughs> right, we could do a whole cocaine month. One uh, well, month. One month of skiing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I will go over my last movie, which was the Dungeons and Dragons movie. Honor hey, among hey. Games. And? Uh, thought thought it was wonderful. Thought it was absolutely wonderful. Listeners of the show will know I'm a Dungeons and Dragons guy. I'm a player and a dungeon master myself, and it has something for people that aren't fans of the franchise, and it has a lot for people that are fans. I say franchise. I should say the world of of that game. Thought it was great, and I want to further geek out by letting you know 
that uh, currently in my campaign, I play a very Fox Mulder-esque human who is looking to uncover in a world of Dungeons and Dragons and Monsters, there's a whole bureau of people doing regular mysteries and, and crime solving and whatever. My character's definitely into the weirder stuff. And as a sort of a cross between two of our favorite series, he occasionally gets on his little magical sending stone and calls back to somebody back at the home office uh, named Diane. So oh, I have nice. my character literally report back to Diane with essentially the the medieval equivalent of a uh, of a tape recorder, which uh, is very fun for me. The other people at the table do not know what I'm doing. Uh, so unless they listen to the episode, they don't really know why I do this. Lovely but it's just a little David homage. Lynch reference there. Yeah. The first the first thing I thought of when you said reports back to Diane was Joan Cusack in, in Gross Point Blank. Cause he's like the she's like the hitman secretary. Like, hi, yeah. thanks for calling. The handler. Like, oh, that's great. <laughs> who, who do you want to off today? Like <laughs> <laughs> That's wild, man. I just had Deja Rev. Some no, reason I you, have you to, talk whenever about I hear there. Diane, I always think of Agent Cooper and I always you know, there's mm. always what is it, February the twenty fourth, where he rolls into Twin Peaks for the first time and you know mm. Hi Diane, that's eleven thirty right. AM rolling into the town of Twin Peaks. Every February 25th, Facebook well, yeah. has to show me, you know, all of these posts. Happy Twin Peaks Day. Yeah. So definitely oh, yeah. get a big reminder of that every year. Yeah, that rules. I, I like that more so than, you know, the May the 4th be with you. Uh, is, is that, oh, this is the day that Cooper comes to town. Well, we did speak a little bit about David Lynch. And why is that? Well, we're covering a movie tonight. Brian, what are we covering? 2001's Mulholland Drive. That's right. Lynch's Mulholland Drive, starring Naomi Watts, Justin Thoreau, Laura Herring, Ann Miller, and Robert Forster. Budget of $15 million. Here in the States, it only grossed $7 million, but worldwide it was $20 million. So while not a big box office mover here in the States, worldwide at least it did make some money. Came in 136th in the box office in 2001. The movie that placed ahead of it was something called The Forsaken. And the movie that placed behind it was Sexy Beast, something that I have yet to see. The number one movie that year, Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. Now, before I keep reading stats about this movie, is it wild to think that though that this movie and Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone came out in the same year? Yeah, my it, reaction to yeah, saying that weird. was like, that doesn't seem right. I think David Lynch really makes a sort of a feel to his movies that yeah. makes it a little bit more timeless, and then, but also the Harry Potter world doesn't really necessarily anchor you to a year. Well, that's true. So I think you've got two things there that don't seem anchored to 2001. Go ahead, I, th I, I think the reason that I have them so separate is I didn't give a crap about Harry Potter until Prisoner of Azkaban. So mm. I had some buffer space between seeing Mulholland and really getting into Harry Potter like there was there was probably there were probably at least five year separation between when this movie came out and I'm like ooh that's weird and then being like okay well I guess I'm into Harry Potter now yeah yeah I had the, I had actually the same we probably talked about this when um when we did a Harry Potter episode um I didn't I had the same thing going on where I wasn't really caught up in the fervor at the at the time definitely the first two movies i didn't get on until probably the third movie 
I, I still tell people it took Gary Oldman to convince me to read Harry Potter. And that's worth it. Any, it, anything Oldman's involved with is going to be a hit. My brother, I think, was correctly old enough at each piece for the Harry, like he was Harry Potter's age as they went along. So I took him to see each of the movies. It was something he and I did together. And I remember sitting through the first one and I was like, ugh. And then sat through the second one and I was kind of like, ugh. Actually, maybe even <laughs> worse. I still to this day will start reading the books on a reread from Prisoner on. Like, just That's nice. Yeah. But um, uh, yeah, it took Gary Oldman. I, I took him to see the third movie and I was so engaged with that one. I was like, it can't just be Gary Oldman, right? Like they've done something different now because this is way more compelling than the last two. Like it had to get, or, it had to get a little dark or maybe he's just got the Midas touch, but Hey, this isn't retro Oldman round table. We got to start <laughs> keep talking about, or yeah, gosh, I mean, we can't go down this road. IMDB rating of Mulholland drive 7.9 rotten tomatoes. Critics tomato meter is 85%. Audience score is 87%. So they are closely aligned and rather high. Didn't win any awards, but nominated for Best Director. It did win at the BAFTAs for Best Editing, uh, nominated for Best Music. And it did win at the Cannes, so that's kind of neat. It is featured in the 1001 Films to See Before You Die. Uh, Is it in the 1001 Films to Understand Before You Die? Not exactly sure. With our experience with Mulholland Drive, Mary, have you seen this movie before? Actually, no. Until we decided to do it for the podcast, um, I had not seen it. I had wanted to see it for a while, being a Mm -hmm. fan of David Lynch, being a fan of Twin Peaks, uh, Blue Velvet, Dune. Yes, a great reason to give it a shot. Uh, How about you, Brian? What's your experience with the movie? I went so far as to have purchased this as part of the Criterion collection several years ago, which if you already have something on DVD and you spend the amount of money it costs to buy a criterion for a movie. It's, it's some love. It, it's a, it's an mm-hmm. act of respect. Actually, it might just be a, an act of lunacy, but, <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, it's one of the few, uh, few movies that I was like, yeah, yeah, I'm going to buy that. In fact, criterion recently put out lost highway, which is this day. Another my favorite, Lynch, yeah. favorite Lynch, anything. This is the kind of devotion we like to hear about. Is that that's how much this can matter to? It's not uh, devo- it's it's not devotion. It's a compulsion. Like ah. this is fiction. It's not. Please, <laughs> listeners, don't don't do what I do. Mm. Don't act as I act. <laughs> I'm a prisoner here. Help me. <laughs> once once you become a fan, and once you sort of, uh, we'll say, buy in to what a director's doing, it's it's hard to turn away. Uh, I actually had not seen this movie before either, and it had been on my list as if I'm ever going to watch any of the movies on my list. Well, the movies I watch are for this show, and I'm so glad that that's <laughs> why I was introduced uh, to this movie. I will say we were slated to watch a different movie uh, from Peter Jackson, his second movie ever, which was called Meet the Feebles. But we decided that it would probably be best not to spend that much time covering Meet the Feebles. Uh, We'll say, avid listeners, if you're into something weird listening to this episode, Meet the Feebles might be something for you. Make sure not to eat directly beforehand. It is uh, stomach churning. I feel like this is dusting out of the back of like one of those big camper vans going like, hey, 
You want to see something <laughs> weird? You see something weird? <laughs> yeah. Um, Just going in what? a direction that's... Uh, yeah, you spying on me, Brian? I've got a flat screen back here. We can watch it together. <laughs> yes, it, it is true that if you're going to watch it, I want you to watch it with me so that we can be weird together. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, Mary, you'd never seen it before. What were you expecting? <laughs> Not for feebles. Not not for Mulholland Drive. We're done talking about the feebles. (laughs) At least we're done for now. (laughs) I mean, I knew right away when I first started watching it, you know, I was in for something interesting. It it, it kind of grabbed me right away when you first hear that Angelo Baldamati theme kick in. That first scene, it kind of, it kind of just, it's like you're in. Um, And yeah, it was, um, it had me gripped all the way through and uh, a second watch just you know kind of made it even better in my mind so um yeah the experience of it coming discovering it and um actually seeing it yeah it holds up yeah it, it holds up and i think it's important to mention that, that you know we talked about it's it's 2001 and what other movies came out at the same time but it does seem to be like of a specific era that because it, it feels like it's of this time of, you know, un- undescribed of exactly when it is just this kind of L.A. area, you know, movie making. Those stories will always exist in the time that they exist. So I think it will hold up for a while. Um, now, Brian, you had, you're, you're the Criterion Collection buyer. So uh, were you expecting anything different going into this watch? No, not really. Um, I will say that some of the commentary was good. Uh, I didn't actually make it through the entire movie on commentary, but... Mm. Um, this is one of those movies that you notice more the more you watch it. Uh, there are things that, that clue you in that maybe you missed the first time or as yeah. you watch it. Even even if you've watched it as many times as I have, you'll be like, I don't remember that. But yes, I think it holds up. I, I, I think that Lynch movies, by and large, are timeless. Hmm. But you've got to get your head right to watch them. And I think we'll get into uh, that particular thing, getting your head right to watch it. After the break, we're going to take a quick little break here, listen to a message from one of our friends. When we come back, this might be one of the hardest tasks in retro movie roundtable history is to give a plot summary for Mulholland Drive. But Brian's going to do it. So uh, take a little break. If you haven't seen this movie, go watch it and come back and listen to us talk about it. See you on the other side. Welcome to the All 80s Movies Podcast. I'm Bill. And I'm Jason. And this is the podcast where we talk about the blockbusters, the flops, and everything in between from one of the freshest decades for movies, the 1980s. So whether you're a brain, a jock, a valley girl, or a Jedi, we've got some 80s classics for you. Do these movies stand the test of time? Are we discovering something new? Is there an 80s movie we're finally watching for the first time? Join us each week as we dive into the cinematic nostalgia that inspired and influenced a generation. From the hits to the cult classics, we'll discuss our earliest memories, favorite scenes, fun facts, and our not-so-favorite movie moments, too. It's the All 80s Movies Podcast, now available on all major streaming platforms. Please subscribe and happy listening. And we are back. It is time for Brian to reveal his plot summary for Mulholland Drive. Take it away. A mysterious dark-haired woman is the sole survivor of a car crash. She stumbles, injured, into L.A. and sneaks into an apartment. Later that morning, 
Betty Elms, staying at her grandmother's apartment, finds her there and elects to call her Rita because of the woman's apparent amnesia. As Betty begins to help Rita sort out who she is, she opens up Rita's purse to find money and a blue key. Meanwhile, at a diner called Winkies, a man tells another man about a horrific dream he had involving a hag behind the diner. When they go to investigate, a figure appears and frightens the dream teller into fainting. Also, during this time, Adam Kresher has his film and bank accounts commandeered by mobsters who insist he cast Camilla Rhodes as the lead in his film. He trashes their car and returns home to find his wife in bed with another man. After all of this, he's urged to meet with a strange cowboy who lays out what he has to do in order to get his life back. Lastly, a bungling hitman attempts to steal a book full of phone numbers and leaves three dead people. Rita and Betty go to the diner, and Rita remembers the name Diane Selwyn because the waitress's name is Diane, and they look her up in the phone book. They try to call her, but there's no answer, and Betty has an audition. She goes and completely knocks it out of the park. A casting agent takes her up to the soundstage where director Adam is first introduced to Camilla Rhodes. Adam capitulates the mob, saying she's the one. Betty and Adam lock eyes, but she leaves quickly before they can meet. Betty and Rita go to the address listed, and they find the occupant dead. Terrified, they return to the apartment where Rita disguises herself and makes love to Betty. In the middle of the night, Rita wakes Betty and takes her to Club Silencio. There is explained that everything is an illusion and that Betty finds a blue box in her purse. On returning to the apartment, Rita retrieves the key and finds that Betty has disappeared. Rita unlocks the box and falls to the floor. Aunt Ruth enters and finds the room empty. Diane wakes in the same bed they found the dead woman, and the neighbor informs her that two detectives were looking for her. She looks exactly like Betty, but is a struggling actress in a depression due to a failed affair with Camilla. At Camilla's invitation, she attends a party at Adam's house. At the dinner... Diane says she is from Canada, and her Aunt Ruth died and left her some money. Another actress, who looks like the previous Camilla Rhodes, kisses Camilla, and they both turn and smile at Diane. Adam and Camilla turn to make their marriage announcement, and Betty slash Diane begins to cry. Later, Diane meets a hitman at Winkies to hire men to kill Camilla. He tells her she will find a blue key when the job is done. Distraught, she is terrorized by hallucinations and a persistent knocking. She runs screaming into her bed where she shoots herself, and a woman in a theater whispers, Silencio. Okay. Admirable job (laughs) of describing what we see. Truly, because I went into this about a couple hours ago, dear audience, me and Brian were talking about, how do we do this? How do we summarize the plot? I think that was a great job. So we got a weird movie here. It definitely has to be, it has to be taken in parts. It's a, this happened, that happened, that Mm -hmm. happened, that happened. I guess that leads me to, uh, the way that you just described that, it leads me to this question, which I'll pose to Mary. We're talking about, okay, well, that happened and that happened. Do we know for sure everything that happened? I don't think so. Because I I find myself reviewing it over and over in my head. Wondering, could this have happened? Or do we really know, um, do we really know X, Y, Z, even though we saw this? Can we assume Mm -hmm. this? Um, So I think 
the answer is probably not. We probably don't know everything that happened. And there are certain things that we never see. We never actually see Rita die at any point. You know? So yeah. there's so many questions. I, I I review this over and over in my mind and watch people on YouTube and see what they think about it. And the more I try and figure it out, the more questions <laughs> I have. You know, I intentionally did not look to YouTube or look to read any explanations as to what happened. And I think that's because I'm a fan of Lynch and his storytelling. But it's because of that that I kind of just settled in, I think an hour and a half in. This movie's 224, y'all. Where I just kind of thought to myself, ooh, we are not going to figure this out, are we? <laughs> and I think that's where I then got comfortable. So, yeah, uh, we have the car crash. Two vehicles, you know, joy riding outside of Hollywood, out on Mulholland Drive, or at least outside of the, the downtown area, which leads to this kind of uh, amnesia. This uh, I don't know who I am from this woman, dark haired woman, uh, very much into like like what David Lynch likes out of some of his actors, you know, very specific, almost the not quite white, but porcelain with the red accents. Uh, he, he really likes that. I think she named, she says she's Rita. It, this is immediately after looking at a poster of Rita Hayworth. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. And then she is dealing with our sweet little Betty Elms from Ontario, Canada. So it's at this point when I guess, you know, we start with kind of a, a, a frenetic like dance scene when the movie is started. We have this uh, accident that happens up on Mulholland Drive. And then we see we see Betty like coming in like from the airport. Uh, what's your expectation here? And I know, Brian, you've seen this a lot, but what are you sort of expecting to come from? It kind of fits into the classic, oh, young starlet trying to make it. It's It's been a common theme with not just Mulholland-titled movies like Mulholland Falls, but also things like Gangster Squad, which are like the old-school L.A. crime noir movies. Where noir, yeah. Uh, you have the hero cop beats up a bunch of bad guys because they're taking advantage of, you know, uh, innocent girl coming to Hollywood to be the big star. So there is that piece. And this takes a very different look at it because that young impressionable starlet is very probably the antagonist of this film. So, or maybe not even just probably. She is. So it, it's almost like an Assassin's Creed piece here. Nothing is true. Everything is permitted. <laughs> Everything's permitted. That, that, the opening scene in the airport, it's, it's so bright. The dialogue is so predictably cheesy. Exactly. It, it, it yeah. kind of, it, yeah, it, it didn't, knowing Lynch, that world he was showing us didn't feel right to me from the beginning <laughs> something yeah. already felt off to me um and the, the the people she was with at the airport having like creepy smiles after they got into their cab it was like okay something i already get the sense that something's um something's up um and i think some of that also is how he he shoots things it just seemed a little bit dream like already yeah me. 
So I, you know, I don't know. I, I, I already had at the very beginning watching us for the first time, I already had this like tension building in me knowing something's, something's off. Certainly a choice uh, to, to present it in that way. We get a very small zig, just a zig, not even a zag, where she looks down. Oh, my bags, they're not here. But no, it's just the friendly cab driver. Can yeah, see, that seems here. too too perfect, like calculated, uh-huh. like, like a you know 1950s movie that somebody slapped together with poor dialogue. <laughs> well, you <know>, speak <laughs> that, That's what 50s, it felt like. And she's, she's kind of wearing that sweater with the sparkles on it that almost seems like, you know, the suburb neighborhood, like, young girl trying to make it like that. So yeah, it, it, that, that's a decision there. And I will say, you know, and I'll jump pretty far here, but we get, there's a lot of things in this early part of the movie that we don't really get closure on. Rita's handbag is full of tens of thousands of dollars. And it's not like we see them splurging or using it for anything. I suppose cab fare, but cab fare was affordable back then. Um, but the idea is, oh, here's just this insurmountable amount of money in this handbag, but it doesn't really give us any clue to anything. And I don't think we ever get that resolved, but we do get a little resolution from that creepy couple, don't we? <laughs> yeah, and I didn't How realize much- it when I saw them in the airport, but on, on the second watch, I realized that you see their faces in that opening jitterbug scene. Oh, and, you do? I didn't yeah, know that. Yeah, I mean, they're like faded out. But there's Wonderful. like this, this like Betty in the middle, Betty, Diane, I don't know. Like, right. W- which name we're going <laughs> to call her. It's going movie. to be so hard, Mary. I don't know how we're going to do <laughs> right, it. <laughs> right. So, and the both, that that couple's like on either side of her. And yeah, you just barely see them just for a second. It's one of those things where I, I didn't catch it the first time around. Well, he likes to do wild stuff like that. He also turned a David Bowie into a giant tea kettle. I just, how much do you really think? Like, it's like one brick of money. So, like, I'm, I'm just, I don't know. I, I handled in the past a lot of cash at work. And I'm just thinking about it. 2001, I'm thinking that might have been like 10 grand, 20 tops. Oh, okay. So, so- like, obviously a questionable amount to have in one's handbag. But it's not exactly like groundbreaking money, unless unless you're unless you're Seth Rogen and knocked up, you're not living most of your life on twenty grand. So I, I my my mind has worked on this money thing in several ways. If we are to assume that the majority of the movie is actually happening in Diane's mind, she may have extrapolated what was a more reasonable quantity of money in the real world and in her mm. mind saw it as more and that's why you're like multiple <laughs> yes so what, what you're getting at out is, of the purse yeah now i i don't always just go to oft-used terms but it's in, in a way unreliable narrator is that our recollection story is inaccurate yeah yeah and I think I see that too. I, I think I see that in a lot of different aspects of um, sort of the glamorousness of what Rita looks like, uh, it, you know, d- directly out of the shower or the ease at which they become friendly to one another. There's, I think there's a lot of stuff that is maybe overly naivete, like romanticized if we're talking about a recollection that is 
in pieces or inaccurate. So that makes some sense. So yeah, that's just one of our things that we don't get much of a of a closure on. I, I like your answer, Mary. And then almost immediately, then we get this diner where at Winkies, where we have, and you know, for Mary and I, this is our first time watching. So we've got, I think his name is Dan, but we've got two gentlemen describing a dream, something about there's a face that I don't want to see again. And we have the reveal of a lovely, scary, thrilling kind of this thing happens behind the dumpsters. What direction do we think the movie's going here when we're introduced to these other characters, uh, that maybe the importance of that diner at all, and then the garbage hag? So my, <laughs> you know, I'm writing notes on my phone as I'm watching this for the first time, and I literally wrote down at 18 minutes into the movie, I wrote down, where is Kyle MacLachlan? Because I don't feel <laughs> safe. <laughs> Probably was during that diner scene that I wrote that down because, yeah, yeah, things are really off. But at that point, we hadn't established a character where we felt safe, at least for me, because I felt like the character of Betty was this sort of person who's arrived there for the first time. She's very vulnerable, so she wasn't like an she wasn't like an anchoring person for me. So I felt unanchored as a viewer at that mm -hmm. point in the movie. I don't think there is an anchor in this. I think this is one of the most listless ships you could possibly have. Because <laughs> that's a really I mean, good point. Who, yeah, there's who, nothing anchoring. Who wins? But... Who wins in this? Like, there's no way. Like, even if you were rooting for you know, Rita and the director, like they're probably not good people. <laughs> like, I, there's, 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 there's not right. someone. There, there's no champion to this film. Which is one of its gems. The, one of the, the most, like, I, I don't want to say beautiful in, in its traditional sense. One of the most beautiful pieces of David Lynch films is maybe, just maybe, postulating a chance that there is nothing good in us in yeah. this film. Right. Things are just happening. Yeah. You're, you're watching a narrative of things happening that ends up being, you know, either drug-induced hallucination or mental illness that leads to a, an end game. Yeah, yeah, I do think that it's a statement to the viewer. And I, I was working in my mind about what what does it mean? And I'm kind of skipping ahead a little bit, but the where where it says, um, if you're good, you'll see me. The cowboy says, if you're good, you see me two the more cowboy. times. If you're bad, you'll see me three more times. So it's like, who who sees the cowboy three more times? We do. Diane also does, but also the viewer does. So who who we is bad? bad. Yeah, we are bad. Yeah, that's how I took that. We were bad. Yeah, and Adam is the one who meets the cowboy. And he's told to go meet the cowboy from his assistant because he has to leave his house. Why? Because Clean Jean is there with Lorraine. I guess I don't know what Adam did to deserve that. Probably deserved it. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't spend I, too much time on that one. <laughs> I suppose. What we, what we learn late in the movie is that he is, I would say, awkward for most of the movie, but it's in the last 30 minutes that we see this version of Adam being very smooth, being smooth and uh, alluring. And uh, that's, that's with not even like with a change of wardrobe or anything like he, he, he's just acting differently, which, you know, kudos to Thoreau there. We don't exactly know why like things aren't going right for him. And to further add to it, there is this shadowy organization. That is freezing his assets and the bank. He says he's got no money and he goes, he goes and rents the room from Cookie who, uh, who gives him 
the information that like some guys came and asking for you. And then, of course, in classic who knows what's going on fashion, Cookie comes back. Sorry, I guess we'll say Gino Silva comes back playing as the MC of Club Silencio later on. Uh, so th- this this world seems very small in a city that is very, very big. And it's just these stories that are just kind of crossing through. So as we're watching, I guess I'll pose this to you, Brian. Which of these threads did you attach onto strongest? There are some that I almost dismiss out of hand, like the guy talking about his dream and then seeing the hag. Mm-hmm. I don't think the movie can do without the professional killer completely screwing up getting the little black buck from the guy and ends up killing two extra people. That's just right. It's, it's one of the more amusing parts of the film. I think the, I mean, I know it's the main piece, but the compelling piece is them trying to suss out what happened to Diane and you realizing that's not the question you should be asking. Hmm. I, I think just the concept that Rita had amnesia it got my mind working on it that, you know, Betty is new in this environment, you know, and I started to kind of reflect or kind of not reflect, but kind of merge the two together. And I was wondering at several points in the movie, what were we dealing with like a multiple personality kind of situation? And that's definitely not what's going on, but as a first watch through, that had entered my head. Um, I think one of Mm. the reasons it entered my head was the scene where Rita decides that she has to change her appearance and they get her the blonde wig. And I was like, oh, she's starting to look a little bit more like Betty now. What's really going on here? Um, So I think my mind was just focusing on who is Rita, but also who is diane i mean well you know at once we got introduced to the concept that there was a diane that there is a diane yeah yeah Yeah. so they go to the apartment and uh we get something there right because because there's a long time in this movie where we don't know Mm -hmm. well it's not as if we know at the end we we get through to where uh that one tenant in apartment 12 says actually we switched 17 diane Clearly, with the two of them there, to us, the audience, okay, so these two, the, 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 neither of them can actually be Diane. So we're, that, that lead had kind of gone cold. And that's when we get introduced to, and there had already been some death in this movie, but that's when we see the excellent dead body, by the way. Well done on the makeup department there. But that's when we have, hey, the young, ambitious, naive girl wants to break into this apartment. Give me a boost. Help me in. And that's where we we find this sort of fetal position body, which cinematically we actually come back to again. There's a question that I wanted to pose to y'all. It kind of makes me think of this visual image, or it just makes me think of what we see or what we experience with our senses, whether it's flashing lights or whether it's the particular types of zoom ins, the shot is, do you need to understand who David Lynch is to get enjoyment from this movie? Or can you come in cold? All three of us kind of knew what to expect, but can you be taken for the ride? Yeah, I I think so. I think it might actually just remove some distractions, you know. Like, I recognized Angelo Balamonte right away as the guy with the espresso. And yes. so I'm thinking, that's him, right? No, that can't be him. He doesn't act. <laughs> I'm like Googling, right. you know, and it the little stuff like that as a David Lynch fan probably distracted my mind a little bit that maybe somebody 
new to David Lynch might not be having all that extra stuff that isn't really important to the movie going through their head. Well, that's true, too, because yeah, I, I, I definitely got distracted by the presence of the man from another place uh, as uh, kind of the, the head of that shadowy cabal. Michael Anderson. Yeah, Michael J. Anderson as Mr. Roke. Like, I, that obviously makes me think, this guy must matter because of what we know him from. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, I, I, I see what you mean about, about the, the creating possible, ooh, sh- should I be paying more attention yeah. to or that? Or maybe I just need to quiet my brain and enjoy the movie <laughs> the first yeah. time around so that I don't get distracted. There are times when we get movies where I do take notes and I like to dissect as I'm watching for the first time. Mm-hmm. And there are times that I don't. And with this one, I was, let me just experience this. There have been movies that I have run into in the past. There's a movie called Hell Ride by Larry Bishop. I ended up catching it at Lake Tahoe on Cinemax, and I sat there and watched the entire thing, and I was like, this is just plain odd and awesome. <laughs> so I feel like you got to go molder with this. Like, if you want to believe, you could watch anything and be game for the ride. But you have to have the type of I don't want to say personality, but you have to have the the kind of open-mindedness to Free say your mind. I, I'm I'm about to watch something weird. Like I yeah, I mean, maybe I took the right yeah. pill. I don't know. But you <laughs> I could totally see I could totally see showing this to someone and them being like, dude, what the heck? Like what, what did what? <laughs> dude, we we could have watched Conan. Like, why did we do this? Or Russell's I, I, reaction of, ah, oh, yeah. Asked, you know, I asked him yeah, if he liked I mean, it. Ah, oh, yeah. Right, but, yeah. You know, I, I've sat through so many movies like this that, you know, a lot of people haven't heard of, and I would never probably even inflict it on another human being, where I was like, dude, that was kind of <laughs> cool. You know, like, like you watch it, and you're like, that was kind of cool. Like, I'm, I'm into what they were trying to do here. It was weird. It was different. I'm game. I'm not even trying to be hipster about it. Like, I'm not even pushing it on other people. I'm like, I'm just going to keep this here in my pocket. I watched it and I enjoyed it. I'm not even going to admit to it. It's, so, it's, it's hard to, like, just erase everything else you know about movies and just be totally yeah. fresh sitting down. You know, like, when I saw Michael J. Anderson, I mm-hmm. that was what tipped me off to, we're probably in a dream state here. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. that is his presence in that room. I'll, I'll give you. We're we're not. It, something's going on. Yeah, you know, something that main. It, it's not. It's not that we're not shown that it's explainable. It's something that just might be a little bit of this, uh, just kind of this weird magic that mm-hmm. exists in the worlds that Lynch creates for us. Yeah. I'd uh, rather watch a strong attempt to do something unique and weird than to watch a mediocre popcorn movie. I believe the last movie I turned off was something called The Internship with uh, Vince Vaughn and Owen Wilson. <laughs> oh, I said, I like that movie. I'm sorry to hear, uh, but <laughs> because I did not, and like I, I maybe it's got some redeeming things, but I'd rather fight through something that I'm struggling to understand just to see something that I, you know, wasn't expecting. I think this movie kind of gives it to you, Brian. You were saying something about the the t- the tone of of like, all right, I just kind of get in the headspace for this. Uh, but we were we were talking pre-show about maybe uh, Lynch's style and his uh, his world building and like what he decides to do. But that this is the last movie he worked on, and that maybe he had 
almost people had taken the torch from where he had carried it so far. So, so I started the, the podcast tonight off air speculating on the fact that David Lynch really doesn't do anything after this. And someone who also does very cerebral, weird movies being Darren Aronofsky kind of started around 98 and kind of carries the torch of, of this. I don't want to say this style of movie. They have different styles of film, but, but also very like, all right, well, that was weird. Like I remember the first time I saw mother and I was like, well, that happened. (laughs) So, um, but, but you know, more intense, maybe in a way, but same thing. However, I'm completely trash canning all of that because while you all have been talking, I had an epiphany and now I I have a completely different conspiracy theory on all this. So if, if the listeners as well, will uh, look up JJ Abrams, you will see that the picture of JJ Abrams versus the picture of David Lynch I, I think he either forwarded young him in time. Okay. Or he made himself younger at some point in time. Not only does J.J. Abrams look like young David Lynch, but he also looks like the director in Mulholland Drive. So hey, I don't. Brian, dude. That's what I was I, thinking. I'm, I'm thinking I'm uh, Justin like, Monroe with his I've hair been, up. I've been sitting here squirming in my seat like, you're on to something. <laughs> Yes. Okay, so I have to ask you, what year is this? <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Wow. And we, yeah. Ooh. And, and we and we yeah. get to this space where I, I'm thinking to myself, ooh, David Lynch had you know his his classic like like high up hairstyle, which I'm kind of sporting these days. <laughs> you kind of yeah, that's pretty good. Yeah. You've got Just plenty of color kind of in there. Too much. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. uh, but uh, yeah, I'm thinking to myself, uh, Justin Thoreau arrived at his audition late and was wearing just all black because he couldn't like get his clothes and he's rushed in he's all strung out and his hair is a mess and david lynch must be like are you me well, well no no think, but but, but <laughs> let, let, let me get further let me go further down the rabbit hole here so yes. you have david lynch who says i'm gonna take on dune i'm gonna make dune happen and people didn't really like it that much and he goes okay well 2001 i'm gonna be <laughs> young me again and you know i'm gonna take on i'm gonna take on star trek not just that i'm gonna take on star wars i'm gonna i, I i'm telling you there's something to this something is yes. wrong out there I, I i i may have just stepped out of the matrix i don't know what's going on but i i like where my I head's get to at the right point now. to where if i see like red draped curtains like on the stage like am i am i in one of those lynchian worlds am I in a lynch movie <laughs> Am I in the White Lodge? The owls know something. <laughs> so yeah, th- th- there, there's a lot of st- in movies like this where the discussion around them. Brian did such a great job with the plot summary, but does anyone know for sure what happened here? Uh, I mean, we're we're thinking about um, the the final thirty minutes here, where we're dealing with. I think what we see on screen is the most real there. And I think maybe what we had seen in the previous hour of 55 was um, either recollection or just two sides of one person kind of that end up merging somehow. And then we get some some visual uh, shocks. Uh, you know, we, we get some things that are, uh, I think, uh, lovingly, lovingly done 
and very special, like the cramped scene, the audition scene with Betty and all of the like the, the casting directors and, and the the older actor. We get that scene, which uh, it really did kind of make me reminisce of the soap opera esque acting of Twin Peaks. However, we also got very tasteful, well-done love scene between Betty and Rita. Then after the fact, we get sort of the tearing apart of what reality is when we've got Betty at the coffee machine and she walks over to the couch, but she doesn't have a cup of coffee anymore. Now it's a glass of something on the rocks and she's no longer in what she was wearing before, maybe a robe dress. And now she's in just a pair of some cut-off denim jeans where we are really toying with what you see. And that's kind of what I wanted to lead to is whether you get this movie or not, and I'm not exactly sure I completely get it, there's a lot of striking visuals in this movie. So tell us a little bit about what, what you'll always remember about the, the, the visual scenes from this, Mary. But that's probably a, a lot to unpack. Reflecting on it, I think we get these clues into Diane's psychological state. I think we get little clues like the scene, the audition scene you mentioned um, seemed a little too real on her part. You know, she has, seems a very sort of superficial character up until that point. And then we see this audition scene um, of inappropriate behavior. It seems so real and it made me, it made me think, is that something that the character of Diane had actually experienced? Mm -hmm. She's reliving it in her mind in the form of an audition, even though maybe that really happened to her. Um, because the, 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 the way she changed, oh, that's I think cool. Naomi yeah. Watts is, I think she was really seemed very different um, in that scene. I think she, I think that was important. I think there other clues are, you know, in that, in that, um, intimate scene where she's saying i love you i love you i think that was off-putting but i think it was also important that maybe she actually yeah. did love the character of rita slash camilla and that love wasn't reciprocated so it's a painful thing that she's reliving it but she's reliving it in a way that makes it a positive thing her mind is sort of twisting it around so that makes me think you know we're we're actually have these little clues to her darkness her mm -hmm. internal darkness before we see where the things that might be playing out, where it goes. Um, you know, so sometimes in action movies, there's a very short amount of time where, let's just say, male lead and female lead are together. There's some type of trauma and then romantic love just boom out of nowhere. This is a situation where we have none of that action stuff. We have none of that, like, uh, surprise, oh, someone saved me. It's just, we're confused. You don't know who you are. We're, we're going to come together in this way. I, I think some of the, the scenes or shots in this movie are kind of just done because Lynch wanted to do them. He, he didn't have to spend a minute and a half on the uh, 16 Reasons Why I Love You singing musical piece, mm -hmm. except for that we know that Lynch loves music and has spent a lot of time uh, you know, in the producer's chair and that he's like, I can do a good job with this. Especially with the, the how she may have remembered it or is like rethinking of it in her mind. And then with what Brian had said about like, well, who's the antagonist here is it's this version of herself uh, throughout. And there's a reason I'm using pronouns here because it's unclear to me whether we're talking about Diane or Rita or Betty that throughout this time, <laughs> right. it's, it's all this kind of 
well, combo of what ends up happening. But yeah, I, I think there was uh, enough room for you to like appreciate just kind of what's being shown. And uh, if it does end up leaving you a little confused, dear audience, like, hey, I'm right there with you. For me, there's a lot of flashing lights when things are unclear. The garbage hag, for instance, in incredibly dark, covered with almost tar, uh, which we it's see a really in Twin alarming Peaks image. Yeah, yeah, that, that definitely uh, sticks with me. I know I'm going to see that when I turn the movie on, so I'm preparing myself. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, and and there there are plenty of other things. Do I mentioned the the red curtains? We've got this the 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 fun surrealness of Club Silencio, something that. I think, Brian, you said this is where we get the reveal that things are all an illusion. And that's also where we first see the interesting blue box with the keyhole. This is probably where you think there's something deeper psychologically going on. But in terms of, of what you've been seeing the whole film, you've got their clothing, which is very, very stylistically 90s. You've got the room that the man is in, which is super duper 70. You've got the, the glam and the lighting techniques they use on a lot of this that is inherently 80s. You've got the movie set that Adam's working on, and it's super duper you know, 50s, 60s, 70s. So I feel like everything that happened in this was meant to take you out of a comfortable time rendering and into a confused state of wait, wh- where, where, or when am I actually? Yeah, yeah, and I think Hollywood is, and LA in particular is, for a guy that's was born there but has never revisited. I think I only know LA through movies, but I feel like I know when it's an LA movie. This is an LA movie. It is a Hollywood movie. But you know, I, I think we we talked a lot about Lynch himself. But uh, about the timelessness of this movie or just like where we are, what else do we have? We have the aunt's apartment is seemingly very old Hollywood. Yeah, the setting on Sunset Boulevard is obviously a reference to the old movie Sunset Boulevard. I kind of wanted to actually watch that in preparation for this movie because it comes up so many times. Um, And I read that when Betty goes to her audition that there's actually a, a car parked. Uh, in front of where she's auditioning, that's actually a car that was in Sunset Boulevard. So there's a very strong sort of intentional gesture to say, "Hey, this is a this is about Hollywood. This is about mm-hmm. what it's like to be in Hollywood." And there, I guess, Mulholland Drive itself is kind of iconic. That makes my mind root in. Okay, this is taking place in Hollywood, and this whole version of events is somehow representative of what happens to actresses in Hollywood who go there. They're trying to make a movie. They're going to be in uncomfortable positions. They're going to be taken advantage of. Yeah. Uh, Yes. The the concept of the casting couch came up when I was doing research on this. And that makes a lot of sense because it it seemed as though that might've been Camilla's role in all of this, that she was, a casting couch that that um, Kesher's character was that for Camilla, and then in turn Camilla was trying to be that or 
for Diane. And that's how this whole situation started, baby. Yeah, for what we know now, uh, and, you know, without going too far along this this road, is that there are far more people that are okay with it, that are complicit in it, that it is uh, kind of been the way Hollywood's always been. And it's not, you know, until the last 10 years that uh, anybody has ever raised their hand, really, and been taken seriously. So this might be actually, we could say, ahead of its time. And that's being 22 years old. Uh, crazy to think 2001 is 22 years ago. But like that's that that makes a lot of sense. Uh, well, speaking of like classic Hollywood, uh, I think uh, I think Coco. Oh, just call me Coco. Everyone calls me Coco. <laughs> She's really like representative of like old Hollywood, or, like maybe the person that like didn't make it but is still still puts on puts yeah, on. Yeah, she has quite a IMDb. Ann Miller, um, and there's two other actresses um, in there that are very much from old Hollywood. And mm-hmm. I think that was kind of a nice gesture to include those actresses um, in a movie. Yeah. You know, that's and, about an actress going to Hollywood. I'm unfamiliar with Laura Herring. I guess it's not that surprising because I think Lynch is looking for a very particular look, uh, which I kind of described that the, the porcelain skin, the dark hair, the, the red lipstick, the black and red use throughout as opposed to sort of the cardigan sweater, sparkly pastels, and the the smart business casual that she that that Betty wears to her to her audition, is that we get these different archetypes that we see throughout the movie. I guess we can include Jean Clean as a different archetype too. I thought it was also very interesting that that on IMDB, if you look her up, most of her screenshots are model shots, like from different magazines. It's not film shots. I know that Lynch had used uh, Krista Bell, who is a uh, singer in uh, Twin Peaks, The Return, and she fits this exact same archetype. He likes this. And, uh, you know, we know about the things that he likes and he tends to use them. He goes back to them. With things that he likes, I believe one of the little trivia tidbits is that uh, when Betty, when Betty is Diane late in the movie, when Diane answers the phone, Camilla's calling her to get in the car to go up to Mulholland Drive. When she answers that phone, there's a bunch of cigarette butts in the ashtray and i believe when that set was staged there were only like two or three so it david lynch took it upon himself to smoke eight or nine other cigarettes just chain smoke them in a row to make sure <laughs> that that was filled gotta be committed and he was uh we've got a scene where like once some of the personalities or the versions of herself come together we've got how would you say a forlorn a yearning kind of a sad the the, the crying masturbation scene with uh, Naomi Watts, I believe that she was actually uh, it was a very tough scene to film. Lynch had built kind of a lampshade style cone around her head to make it more comfortable to be able to do that and get the shot the way that he needed to. We just have so many decisions made for these kind of stunning art pieces, which I think we can kind of say that's what this movie is, is a whole bunch of artful decisions that David said, I just want to get all these in a movie. And uh, it's been 22 years and he hasn't put another movie together. But I think this is kind of what we've come to expect from him. I think that definitely for this film, like there's no point in time in any of what happens in this film that I would call it gratuitous nudity. Everything was there for its dramatic piece. It wasn't for shock or allure. It's it's right. almost meant for sadness. I mean, Definitely the scene you're talking about, but 
I never, I never got yes. the, the, the feeling or essence. You could, you call it like a, a staged piece where you have what it was supposed to be love. What it turns out to be as a middling one's more attracted than the other to a mm-hmm. pure loneliness. Like it, it, it basically downgrades itself using intimacy to yeah. the point where you finally get your, your, your primary character and, and, and that, that loneliness, that, that core piece is what is so visceral about the film. I've got a little bit of a reputation of being a sad boy on this podcast, but that is the kind of stuff I like to see is when you can artistically show whether it, you want to call it a decline or just the movement of emotion from things were good and now they're worse, uh, to do it in a way that's compelling to keep you watching is uh, very well done. Great. The nudity scenes were done in a really artful way and they didn't feel... Um, Shoehorned in for a, a non-meaningful exactly. reason. Exactly. They were, they were meaningful, um, meaningful shots. So, yeah, I just wanted to add that in there. I totally agree with that assessment. Well, speaking of adding things in, anything that you wanted to bring back up? Yeah, I actually did have one question for you guys. Who do you think Camilla is, that third girl with the blonde hair? I've got some superlative stuff to say about her, so I'm going to remain silent on this. Not that that (laughs) it has anything to do with this conjecture, but I I, I want to bring her up in a minute. Yeah, I guess what what I'll say, without having to go too far, is my honest answer, who knows? But my, 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 my honest attempt at trying to answer your question is, yeah, th- there's the idea that there's competition in Hollywood, questions that are like completely mystical, like the cowboy, right? And we know we can't answer that. But with, with Camilla, I would presume that Camilla just represents the other people. Now, maybe it's from that casting couch, or maybe it's just the idea of opportunity. You can't capitalize on all of it. Even if you are a leading lady, there's another one in another production just down the street. So perhaps that what it is, that's what it is. But I, I don't think any of my brain was prepared to try to figure out who Camilla was while I was watching this. I don't think that Camilla or the director or even the people surrounding them, like whether they're strong arming or otherwise, I don't think they're anybody. I think they're archetypes for the director that has this artistic view of where things should be, and he gets strong-armed into doing something he doesn't want to do. I think Camilla is the, you know, the actress that everyone wants but no one can attain, and mm-hmm. you know she'll she'll play around with whoever and whatever because she can. Well, and aren't there many different real-world actors who played, and the, the headshots for Camilla Rhodes are different throughout the movie, and whoever the Camilla who br- comes into the scene is different all the time. So that I, I can see that for sure. The actress who plays the version of Camilla that we first see in the headshot, the, the blonde woman. Or as, or as Betty would say, a visual resume. One, yeah, the, visual, the first visual <laughs> resume we see. Um, <laughs> The thing that made my mind work on this is that when we see the corpse, the corpse has long blonde hair. Yeah. So that made me actually wonder, is she actually the real Camilla Rhodes? And the Rita version of Camilla Rhodes is 
Diane's projection of who of who Camilla Rhodes must have been in order to get all these parts instead of her. See, and I end up getting confused too because our our Rita uh, ends up having, and I don't know if it's just stylistically, but we end up getting uh, much more in terms of at least voice, kind of a Latina flair. Do you guys pick up on that? Uh, just based on the language play they use while she's talking in her sleep versus Silencia. Yeah. But but it's also it's also used and it, it may be ambiguous and it switches between languages when they're at dinner. Uh in, in the last uh in the last dinner scene with uh with Justin Thoreau and with Coco. Yeah. Um but I think at that point I was just like, is there anything I can grab onto that's real? <laughs> <laughs> Don't really know. Nothing is real. No, that that was a great question. Uh well, I'd love to talk more about this movie, but I'd like to do it when we discuss our superlatives. You guys ready? Sure. Let's go. Mary. Who is your MVP of Mulholland Drive? I have to give it to Naomi Watts because she just, there are so many facets of character that she brings to us in this movie. So I think that she takes such a huge load through the whole film. Agreed. She's mine as well, uh, for that matter. It's, there's really nothing that is done in this film that isn't, based on her action or reaction. I mean, sure, there are a couple segments without her in it, but by and large, she wrecks this film. The, the scene where she envisions herself wrecking an audition is what she did in this film. Yes. Yes, and to see it and the range all in one movie. Because we understand actors' ranges across films, but within one uh, without it being to the level of, we'll say, schizophrenia or multiple personalities. This is extremely well done for her. Uh, I am not making a three for three, though. Uh, for me, and if you couldn't guess it, uh, it is going to be David Lynch. It's not right to say, like, the courage to try this. This is just what he does. Because it's what he does is why when we had to sadly say, no, meet the feebles, but Mulholland Drive came up as an answer, I said, oh, yes. I'm ready. So I was very glad to do it. And I think I got what you can expect to get. Oh, I would even say that this is his opus. I mean, this is the last major thing he ever did. There it is. Because he, he intended this to be a, uh, to be a series. He intended right. this to be like part Spin of something that, that goes on longer. And you can see how that would work. And with production, it changed. Uh, but yes, I, I, can, I can totally see that too. Mary, who is your best supporting actor? I chose Laura Haring for that. Um, I felt like in the same way that Naomi Watts shows us different facets, she does as well. Um, her character takes on different colors, and I think that, that she brings a lot um, to, the, to the film through that. I went with Justin Theroux on this uh, for two different reasons, two different scenes specifically. One was uh, when he's talking to the uh, slummy apartment manager. And then yeah, cookie. The, the, yeah, the subsequent one where he's talking to the cowboy. Like I feel like right. that that's probably the closest thing that you see as a take away from Naomi Watts's predominance in this film to call it a secondary performance. Yeah, and and his sort of path throughout this movie, it's not that I would call it a B story because it's not as much. But when he gets a chance to sort of show 
I mean, he, he has to be almost dead inside during the scene where he finds Lorraine in bed with Gene Clean. And even doing that well is showing some more range. So that, that's a great choice. I actually also chose Laura Haring specifically because of how well she plays Lost. I think there's the idea of overacting amnesia. And there wasn't a single point in this that I didn't believe that she didn't know who she was. And that's wild. Because mm-hmm. I don't think I've ever met anyone in real life that does that. Um, it's sort of like that, that old game or that old thing from early 90s TV when like, you kind of realize, like, man, I kind of thought I'd run into a lot more quicksand. <laughs> like, there's no quicksand <laughs> anywhere. And amnesia is such a common like, plot thread in TV shows and movies that you'd be like, I think I know what that is. But uh, kudos to Laura Haring for being able to pull that off. Yeah, she, she plays it in a way where you're really afraid for her. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. What is your hidden gem, Mary? Uh, that's, <laughs> that's a little hard to pick because there's so many when you go through the, the INDV. And you're such so a special many people guest, are somebody. You're, yeah. you're allowed to cheat. If you want to give me two or you want to give me three, I'm, that's I'm, fine. The audience is here for it. I'm going to I'm going to give you two. Uh Michael J Anderson as Mr. Roke. I mean, I just like I was all in with this movie when I saw him. He's fantastic. And my other hidden gem is Angelo Baldamonte. <laughs> ba- yeah. Not sure I'm saying his name quite right, but he's probably one of my favorite composers. I mean, I actually like his work so much. I just listen to it sometimes put on a soundtrack of his and yeah it it, it brings up that sort of david lynch world even if i can't watch a movie at the moment so it was so fun to see him you know as that character with the espresso and yeah that was such a memorable moment of the movie but yeah i just really loved him being able to get into the movie because i'm such a big fan of his yeah those are great choices brian uh you have the same leeway if you have multiple hidden gems i i just have one my my hidden gem is melissa george I she is the one. Like I I absolutely love her. Uh it started with the show Alias. She was in season 3 of that and was a predominant part of it. She was in Hunted, 30 Days of Night. She is the one. That's great. Yeah, you know you're an Alias head. For me, I actually originally had uh Michael J Anderson as Mr. Roke, but I'm going to switch off of that because you said it. I'm going to go with uh Rebecca Del Rio. As Rebecca Del Rio Mm -hmm. in the Silencio Club, I was first introduced to her because she was on stage at the Bang Bang Club in one of the Twin Peaks episodes. And her voice is perhaps the most beautiful I'd ever heard. Rebecca Del Rio and her albums are now forever on my iPhone. And I I think she, playing an odd role in a way at Club Silencio, this is all a tape recording. Uh, Having her in that moment was was special um in fact i've actually recast in another episode of this show uh, somebody that had a singing voice i said do not do that get rebecca del rio in here so she's my hidden gem of this one nice choice yeah speaking of recast mary who are you gonna recast in this movie you know that's so many good people in you know, such small parts, it's really hard to find a recast. I was going to go with the guy who played Dan in the diner scene, not because yeah. he was bad Fischler, in any way. Patrick I just Fischler. felt like maybe, you know, other people might have been able to do that role. 
I yeah, didn't have he, anybody he, to put in there for him because it's not like he did a bad job. It's just, yeah, it's hard to pick in a movie like this. It almost makes me think, who's the guy that plays Eugene Toomes? Makes oh, me yeah. think he, <laughs> he could do that. Yeah. Patrick Fischler. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, great call on that. Yeah. Yeah. He's kind of, kind of nervous and um, almost looks like a fish out of water. It's something about him is a little off too. He just looks like a fish. Yeah. Uh, my recast. <laughs> I, I, yeah. Laura Haring does nothing for me. Um, oh, really? it, 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 there, there's just something off. I don't, I don't know about the whole thing. And uh, I'm, I'm going to be a homer on this one. I'm going to go with Kate Beckinsale as my recast. Mm. Um, I needed someone who I was as attracted to as the main character. Like I, mm. I, I, I think if I had, had viscerally felt it's it the order. same way that yeah. the main character was feeling it, like, and, and there was just, I don't know if it's how she played aloof during the hallucinate, whatever you want to call her, her primary portion of the film, but it just, I don't know. It like, I needed, I needed that piece to be more alluring to me. Nothing wrong with that. I'm sure. She would have been good in this. Yeah. I I don't know if that part of that, your reaction to her might be the way in which they wanted her to play the part. I think that aloof feeling is, was totally intentional. Oh, very possible. And this isn't yeah. a knock on how she played it. Like, it's not that she's not beautiful, sure. But I just think that this movie would have been a little bit more primal for me if it was someone I found more attractive. What if it was Sherilyn Fenn who played Audrey Horn? Yeah, I, I actually was wondering, like, did, could David Lynch have casted her? It was the intention. They, they, they would have been better off with Melissa George, honestly. Well, I, I, I would have loved to see any of these options. I'm also a big Kate Beckinsale head. Uh, for me, I actually, I really loved Thoreau. I, I, I liked Justin Thoreau's uh, performance and uh, the idea that he is David Lynch sent forward and backward through time. I think you're onto something there, brother. But I was thinking of recasting him with a 25-year-old Killian Murphy. Hmm. He's not as funny. I don't know if he has the opportunity. He's he's, he's less directory. That's that that's more smolderingly intense, less directory. And so maybe that's where I wanted the director to be, not end of movie sleazy schmoozy, but to be that intense style. Not sure. Um he definitely couldn't do the Gene Clean scene as well as Justin Thoreau did, but it was just an idea. It's not like I want to recast him. I thought he did a great job. Well, just for the record, at 2001 Kate Beckinsale was doing Serendipity and Pearl Harbor. So that is the looker you are getting. Pearl Harbor, underrated movie. We'll have to cover it, I think. What's your best shot of the movie, Mary? It's actually during, right after the intimate scene um, with Rita and uh, Betty, where there's this still shot where the two girls' faces, one is in profile, one is straight on, and the two faces sort of are arranged like an optical illusion image. Hmm. It's just one still shot. Lynch lingers on it for just just a moment before it like blurs into a different image. And I thought that was a key moment for me 
processing what I was seeing and wondering how much of one character is really true for the other character and what, try, trying to figure out in my head what's going on here and that sort of visual cue of having their two faces done in that artistic way, I thought was really beautiful and thought-provoking. Yeah, great choice. What about you, Brian? I love the view starting at the ground, going down the alleyway to Silencia. Exact same choice, I, Brian. I, I chose I, the dude, exact same thing. I, I remember seeing it and I was like, phone, phone iPad. Yeah. Where are my notes? Where are my notes? Even without the zoom in, I thought it was pretty cool to, to yeah. be that far away. Yeah. I would have taken, even, yeah, if they had not done like the, the moving zoom in <laughs> that they did, like that would have yeah. been it. There's actually something I believe I read, which is one of the signs, like almost a, uh, plastered on sign on a post in that scene, which I did not catch because I was kind of enamored by it, is uh, something that says Hollywood is hell uh, in, that, in that shot. But I love that shot too. There was, a, uh, there was a, a promo shot for Twin Peaks that had the neon sign with the, in a, like, the reflection in a puddle. As oh, it was, like the, a, a, as it, I dude, I still to this day, I'm like, yes. yeah, that, that. What is your best scene, Mary? Pretty much everything. Once you get in Silencio, sort of the reality starts to break down and the, they're explaining how even the, the instruments are an illusion because it's all pre-recorded and mm-hmm. no, you start I to see the, 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 you know, the song, the, the wonderful, I think it's a cover of a Roy Orbison song. Um, so oh, I, cool. which is really kind of interesting because there's a Roy Orbison song in Blue Velvet. So I thought that was kind of a fun um, connection there. Seeing the both of the, the girls and how they react to the song, their emotional reaction, and you're, you're starting to see, you know, what is, what is it that's making them cry right now? And um, yeah. the discovery of the uh, blue box in the purse, that whole sequence to me was the best scene because it's really kind of culminating all of this stuff that you've just watched um, and it's starting to go somewhere. Yeah, great choice. I completely agree with all that. Uh, the only reason I didn't pick Silencio's entirety is for variety. <laughs> I, I also, on a completely different note, so you have, you have the, the raw nature of, of what happened in Silencio. I went the other direction just for a little levity, and that was the talent agent's office. It's him shooting the breeze. Yeah. Oh, I shot you in the head. I'm trying to make it look like you killed yourself. End up <laughs> shooting this woman in the back. She's like, I got bit by something horrible. <laughs> and, and, and at this point, in a movie where there's absolutely no reason for you to laugh so hard you cry, you're like laughing so yeah. like it's I, I feel like it's part of what he is. It's a reminder that I, I can make you feel this way. I'm not going to. My movies don't make you feel this way, but I can. If I want to, <laughs> I will make you laugh. Yeah, I could put this on the buffet. You didn't, like, yeah, I, you didn't yeah, know you wanted it. I, I can bring this to you, and you're going to get a hint of it here, and, and, and you're going to be like, where the heck did that come from? But it, was, but it also wasn't out of place. <laughs> I like that it makes the hitman a little bit 
just of an incompetent. It's not even. It 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 questions whether or not he could actually do the job that um, Diane had hired him to do if he messed up this job so badly. As, As a professional of anything, you've had moments in your life where you're like, really? Did that just like, happen? Th- like, b- why would why would that happen? Like, everything was great, and then why would that happen? Like, this was a comedy of errors in a way where he's like, he he did everything perfectly. It just so happened the wall was thin enough to shoot the woman. <laughs> in this. Like, and then and then the janitor he's pulling her out, and the janitor standing at the end of the hallway, and you're like, for the real, the vacuum cleaner's like, running, <laughs> like. Come on, man! Like, yeah, I love how retrospectively, everybody... like this guy, we know him primarily as being Lucifer and supernatural. So right. retrospectively, it just seems huh. so fitting for him for what he would later do. Yeah, there's a couple other uh, unasked for dead bodies, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, but that's a it was a good slingshot or a boomerang away from uh, Mary's scene. Mine is. At maybe a, a, like a, a corner, a third corner of the chitons of scenes in this movie, which is the cramped office with the uh, performance for the audition of a scene that Betty's character said, this is a bad scene. She's running lines. You remember, she's running lines with uh, Rita earlier. And uh, there's actually kind of a little throw that, she, you know, when you first see that scene, it might seem like she's actually talking to Rita. Oh, no, they're just running lines. That I I thought it was it really showed like the spectrum of like oh look look what our lovely goddess Naomi can do, um, and uh, the the crampness and uncomfortableness added to uh, I think the coup of what that scene is. We don't interact with any of those other players in that scene ever again. So just it, this was another thing I think that like you said I can put this on the buffet. Let me show you what I can do here. Naomi is supposed to play this character a very particular way, and in this scene where she is doing acting, wow, what a scene! How about a wardrobe or makeup moment, Mary? <laughs> so I just really was entertained by the whole situation with the pink paint, where yeah. <laughs> Oh yeah, or Kesher dumps the paint into yeah. the yeah he dumps the paint into the jewelry and he's got it all over his totally black outfit and he's still wearing it when he goes to meet the cowboy. So the cowboy's standing there in these like this, classic wardrobe, yeah. right? Pl- classic wardrobe from from western movies. The director characters all got the, you know messed up hair and you know hot pink paint all over his outfit and something just was really fun about that. Yeah. Um, in a in a you know a scene where you're you don't really know what's going on, but then you're still laughing at the fact that he's covered in pink paint. If you take that scene along with the botched hitman scene, you might think in this first thirty minutes this movie is going to be a lot more lighthearted than uh, what we end up getting. Brian, what about your wardrobe or makeup moment? You know, I actually have to agree with that. The only thing that I would really tie Tarantino to this film is something like that happening like that sort of stark contrast happening between colors for a reason, but on purpose. Well, I'm, I'm once again, I'm not going three for three with y'all here. I am going with, uh, with Camilla's look, or I guess we'll, we'll say uh, Rita slash Camilla Rhodes, Laura Herring in that uh, it, in the end of the movie, when she's wearing, she, they do a lot of black and red with her. Um, they, they make the, the black sort of sweater or kind of cardigan over her red top. 
um, almost look like uh, buxom bombshell early in the movie. And then they do this thing with a, uh, a dress with a cape, like a red cape. Uh, and you're thinking, whoa, what a choice. And I think that is, it, it's just a very particular style. And I'm glad he went with it because um, that, that's, he'll continue to use that black and red motif or the black and white with the red accent. Uh, I thought it was just really, really indicative of what we know uh, Lynch likes. And uh, she really pulls it off. Yeah, it definitely me reminds me of other characters of hers. You know, like the character Audrey Horn has the dark hair, dark lipstick, um, mm-hmm. and Is- Isabella Rossellini in Blue Velvet. Yep, yep, and uh, Krista Bell in uh, The Return. Mary, tough one. Uh, what are you going to change about this movie? One thing to change. So I actually was thinking of adding a scene. And That's a change. Thought, yeah, I thought that it's not my normal kind of thing to do during a change thing, but. <laughs> I, I thought it'd be interesting to see a scene uh, with the Hitman character that showed us him actually doing something right. Okay. In in more of the real world setting where we know he fumbles around, and but we may be just in Diane Betty's dream state. Can we see him and take him more seriously if we see him actually accomplish something and because how how do we even know that he actually did in Camilla? We never see her body at any right. point in the movie. We don't really know if she's actually. Uh, we we suspect that he's been hired to kill her. We suspect that based on Diane giving him money and the yeah. Blue once you hand this over, that, it's but done. we and we see the blue key at the end. But could he have just like? hit her over the head and she has amnesia and he put the blue key in Diane's apartment. We have no idea. So, and does it start the loop over? Yes. So do we want something that shows him being competent so that we believe he actually did the deed or is it better the way it is? We're requesting it. I don't know. Well, I know you said it was an ad, but we do have a scene, I believe with him, with some other strung out looking dude and probably just a, a prostitute uh, where the three of them are like heading over to like a van. Am I misremembering this? Yeah, there's a scene like that, but I don't think it establishes that he's actually ever accomplished anything in his career That's what as a I'm criminal. Saying is, he's just exactly, asking her where Camilla is because exactly. he doesn't have a means to find out. And so that scene doesn't do anything to help us figure right. out if he's successful. So could we take those 45 seconds to see him being efficient with another kill maybe yeah i maybe. guess yeah i guess one way to do it is to change that scene maybe yeah wherever it happens to go what are you changing brian i would actually have less segue bluff like i felt like there was a lot of interchangeable moments where they didn't need as much scenery in between like i think this movie actually could have been condensed by about 10 minutes without removing anything yeah, I, I'm, one comes to mind, right? One comes to mind of uh, how easy is it just to go up to like a motel door as opposed to the labyrinth that they have to go around to all the apartments Yes, to find the right apartment. Like, like that, that makes sense. I, I, I can see what you're saying there. Uh, mine is uh, with our like, character divergence and when it starts to come together for us. I think I'd like that a little earlier. In the movie, not at 155. 
to give us some time to ponder a little bit more. We already know things are wild and unexplainable, truly, or completely. So if we could have some more of the what we're seeing is not reliable or what we're seeing is magical, movie magical, earlier, I think that'd be nice. I don't think it would, it, like it objectively improves, but I'd, I'd like to wonder what that would be like if we have a little more time to try to figure things out. And we're going to finish with our best quote, Mary. There's some fun quotes. Uh, there's some fun quotes in this movie, but I do like um, the, the, I do love the cowboy scene where he's saying, uh, no, you're not thinking you're too busy being a smart aleck to be thinking now what i want you to think and stop being a smart aleck can you try that for me <laughs> yeah i loved that yeah can you how take many times this seriously? in my life am i thinking exactly that in my head oh and wow want to say something like that and i can't <laughs> <laughs> right you know what's funny that there's kind of a short version of that that i have used in the past it's, it's a very, like a very common thing for like parents to use. I used it for my little sister was, what did I just say? That is kind of a shortened version of like, can you actually just slow down for a second? <laughs> no, that's a great one. Uh, Brian, what's your best quote? The cowboy really has the best quotes of the film. Now, you'll see me one more time. It's so he, menacing. It's so yeah. menacing. It's so menacing. And he disappears into the flickering light. And, and that's the thing. He, we don't have to be shown that he just disappeared. It's like, I, I, Adam. I, I, I don't want to see you two more times, please. <laughs> right. <laughs> I, I would prefer to not see you two more times. I think the power in this movie, a lot of power comes from the meaningful quotes and the meaningful dialogue. Uh, but I am willing to give the best quote to old Billy Ray Cyrus when he's sit, when he's like leaned up in bed and she's like screaming. And I believe he says, He's probably upset, Lorraine. <laughs> <laughs> that is great. Uh, yeah. Well, uh, we've come to the time where we rate this movie uh, on a five-star scale, 0.5 being the worst, five being the best. You can use half-star increments. Mary, how do you rate Mulholland Drive? I give it a five stars. I love a movie that I see more in each time I watch it. That makes it really special, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, five stars from Mary. How about you, Brian? I gave it four. It's not something I reach down and say, hey, I have to watch this because I feel the need to. But when it gets brought up, I'm like, ah, I need to watch that. So uh, I'm not giving it the, the massive rewatch push, but it's an awesome movie. Uh, the second thing you just said, where I may not be seeking to rewatch this, but if it comes into my mind, a pleasant memory will be like, I want to rewatch that and I kind of can't wait to is uh, funny. I land right in the middle of YouTube with a 4.5. I came into the podcast thinking I rated this a four, but our discussion is when you can talk about a movie, get really raised it to the 4.5 for me. Cause that's what I live for. Uh, I, I think I got the Lynch stuff. I wanted, I got the repeating of lines he loves to have characters repeat lines to one another or just repeat them to themselves. Uh, we've got these strange movie gangsters, Dan Hedaya, one of them, Angelo Badalamenti, the other. And then uh, Michael J. Anderson is kind of the leader of this strange movie cabal. Who knows what that even is? 
who knows what a lot of this movie is. But uh, I specifically didn't want to learn anything from YouTube or from reading anything else because I'd rather figure it out from talking to you two. And uh, any of you listeners out there, if you want to try to explain this to us, you got to hit us up. But uh, this is a 4.5 stars from me and a recommendation. I don't recommend all of David Lynch's stuff, but this is the recommended. I think you said it right, Brian. This probably is his opus. Uh, But enough for Mulholland Drive tonight. We've got to select a movie for next time. Brian, can you help me? Of course. All right, I've got three options here. We're going to start with from 1927. We're going old school here. We're going super retro movie roundtable, SRMR, with Metropolis from 1927. In a futuristic city sharply divided between the working class and the city planners, the son of the city's mastermind falls in love with a working class prophet who predicts the coming of a savior to mediate the differences. Let's go a little older. Option two, A Trip to the Moon from 1902. You guys have seen that classic image. Pretty simple premise. A group of astronomers go on an expedition to the moon. And we can go even older, y'all. Option number three, The Arrivée d'un train, un garret de la ciotat from 1896. Oh, nice. A train comes barreling down the tracks at you. What are we going to do, Brian? I think we have to do Metropolis, right? Uh, being as it, the one that actually has a plot to summarize, uh, yeah, I think Metropolis is a good one. Uh, I look forward to uh, seeing what that's going to be. Mary, I hadn't talked to you in 15 years. It's great to have you on the show. Yeah, wow. It's been that long, I guess. Um, yeah, thanks for having me on the show really? today, guys. This was really fun. I've listened to her. Yeah, I mean, yeah, we haven't oh, actually been on a recording yet. You guys were yet. all yeah. Tennessee, right? Okay, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's been a while uh, ago now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, been a little while ago. Uh, well, thank you for coming back on. And thank you, all the lords, ladies, and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable. We invite you to reach out to us. We want to hear from you. Subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Pandora, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. Give us a like on Facebook, Instagram, and follow us on Twitter at movie underscore retro. Email us at retromovieroundtable at yahoo.com. Producing and providing this podcast is fun, but not free. We invite you to support the show at our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash retromovieroundtable. Any contribution is much appreciated and will go towards making this show better for you, the listeners. As always, thanks for listening. Be good to each other and watch more movies. Brian? One day, my log will have something to say about this. <laughs>